0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agriculture literacy discussion. This podcast is hosted by me, Will Fett, from the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation, and by Katie Carpenter of New York Agriculture in the Classroom. Throughout this season, we'll be joined by friends of Agriculture in the Classroom from across the country as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture, and we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. Hello and welcome to this episode of Outstanding in Their Field. I'm Will Fett, your host for today, and with me is Denise Harmson, who has a wealth of knowledge and loves to share her knowledge with others to help educate about agriculture. Denise, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you. Well, so happy to have you here with us. Can you start us off and give us a little bit about your educational background and your professional training?
1: Absolutely. So I graduated from Iowa State University, double major in science and English, and then I have a minor in animal science. I had started out pre-veterinary medicine and switched over to a full science degree. My background has always been, as far as professionally, working around large equipment, I've been a technical Mm -hmm. author for many years, and it typically has been in the agricultural equipment. I worked for Caterpillar on their combines, so I wrote Systems Op TNA, so Systems Operation Test and Adjustment Manuals, and when I left Caterpillar, I worked for John Deere and Company and started writing diagnostic manuals for them. I had been all over the world, so I got a very good view of agriculture in different parts of the world, as well as the United States. And I recently took an early out retirement package from John Deere and had started an egg production business Where I'm at today is I am still working in the agricultural field, so I run a lot of large equipment, and I also breed horses.
0: That's fantastic, and it sounds like you've had some really great experiences throughout. Tell us a little bit more about that egg production business.
1: Absolutely. So it started a very long time ago when my son was in eighth grade. And he started showing chickens in 4-H. And some of them happened to be hens that we were using personally for eggs, just for family purposes. And he also showed roosters. Throughout the 4-H process, which is, I think, a very good starting companion for learning for kids as they grow older, And I had asked him when I took the early out package from John Deere, what he would think about learning how to turn a 4-H project into a business. And so really, that's the grassroots of how the egg production business started. So I have to attribute a lot of the engineering analysis, a lot of the PowerPoints That I've used for 4 H and FFA in the past really to a lot of what he started when he was in 4 H. We did a lot of nutritional analysis, engineering analysis, different weights of eggs, different breeds of chickens that are producers versus different breeds of chickens that are mainly for show purposes that aren't egg producers. And so Really, that's how it started. And so when the early out package was offered with John Deere, that's when we started the actual egg production as a business.
0: That is so cool to hear. And I think largely, it's exactly what those 4-H and FFA projects are intended to do is start small and grow. How many birds did you end up with?
1: We started with 50 when he was in 8th grade, and we ended up anywhere between 650 and 1250. As birds were going out, new ones were coming in. So at the most I had was 1250, and at the least was 650.
0: Oh, wow. And that's a lot of eggs. Can you give us an idea of how often a chicken lays an egg and what's involved? What does that cycle look like?
1: The egg producing chickens that we used, which we did a lot of research before we decided to get this breed of chicken. It's a highline four-way cross. So the birds are a hundred percent egg layers. Every single day of the year. Now, honestly, on the flip side of that, when you are producing that many eggs, you don't have a long lifespan for the hen. We turned ours over just before 12 months. The birds were a brown egg laying cross for production. And when new birds would come in, we would start them at 18 weeks. And they would start with a smaller pullet egg. And then the business for me actually sold anywhere between small and extra large eggs. And then any pullet eggs that we started with, we donated to food pantries and reservoirs. And any jumbo eggs went to family members.
0: That's so interesting. So I know we see different sizes of eggs in stores, but I'm not sure that everybody's familiar with all of those options. Can you go into a little bit more detail about pullet, small, medium, large, extra large, jumbo?
1: Sure. The pullet egg is the very first eggs that a chicken will lay before they get to about 24 weeks. And those pullet eggs are not sold in stores because of the size. When you attribute it to recipes or just consumers, you'll see a small or medium sized egg on the shelf. But pullet eggs typically are not used in retail, neither are the jumbo or eggs that have a double yolk. And you know the differences in eggs because as part of the Iowa Department of Agriculture's process and requirements, every egg has to be cleaned and candled before it even gets packaged. So as a producer, you are constantly checking the weight of the eggs, so you're required to have a USDA and FDA egg scale. So you weigh the eggs, you look at the yolks, you check for spotting, size, and everything gets packaged accordingly from small, medium, or large in the actual egg carton and then labeled before it ever would hit the shelf in a retail market.
0: So if I understand correctly, the egg size isn't necessarily related to the body size of the bird. I'm sure there is some correlation there, but largely the egg size is is related to the lifespan of the chicken, smaller eggs when they are young and larger eggs when they're old?
1: That's correct. I wouldn't necessarily say that the chickens are old. After 24 weeks, the egg is a mature egg. And that mature egg continues on through the lifespan of the bird. However, in the production chickens, the hens that we had, the number of eggs that you will get daily will decline. And for business purposes, you can imagine if you're not getting the height of production, you're losing money because you're feeding a bird that wouldn't be producing every day. You know, if you wait until those birds are 12 months or older, the ability for those birds to lay one egg a day starts to decline considerably.
0: That's so interesting. And you also mentioned something earlier about those quality checks. When we go to the grocery store, there's so much uniformity. And and I think that's what consumers really like to see. They like to know that they're going to have an egg that's the same as the next one and have a, a dozen eggs that are exactly the same. But you do some rigorous checking to make sure you have that quality. You talked about candling, you talked about weighing and measuring, and tell us a little bit more about that quality check system.
1: One, there's a quality check system already put in place by each Department of Agriculture. We were a part of the Iowa Department of Agriculture, as well as the Illinois Department of Agriculture, and each state has its own quality checks put in place. However, it's also dependent upon the producer to keep the birds healthy There's a lot of terminology that floats around with farm-raised, free-range, if it's organic. There's a lot of terms that are put in place by each Department of Agriculture. And then it's up to the producer to work with their state inspector to make sure that if they are identifying their eggs as Mm -hmm. free-range, The inspector makes sure that those eggs meet the terminology requirements being free range. There's some sunlight requirements when you talk about free range. There's also some space requirements when you talk about free range. And the inspection process, as far as the Iowa Department of Ag handles, is extremely detailed and my inspections were two and a half hours long, and they check the area where the birds are located. They also check the egg handling area, and also during the inspection process, they double check everything that you are putting on your label, agrees with the processes that you're using, both in the chicken area as well as the egg handling areas.
0: Everything you're describing. Really, kind of gives me some confidence and comfort in the safety of our food system. So, I really appreciate that. This entire time, we've been talking about layers. You specifically called out the Highline Cross, but there are different types of chickens for different purposes. We talk about layers and broilers and show chickens. Give us a sense of those different types of chickens and maybe the different purposes that they serve.
1: Sure, sure. So, Your broilers are typically very fast growing meat birds, and their breed is specifically selected so that when the bird hits about six pounds, it goes through a process specifically for meat production. So you'll see those in your supermarket shelves. Your broilers are typically your breast meats. You'll see a lot of chicken products on the shelves, and those are coming from your fast-growing broilers. The egg production chickens, there are select numbers of breeds specifically designed to produce eggs. Those production birds can range anywhere between Black Wyandotte to a Rhode Island Red to what used to be called a YSR or a golden. In addition to the egg layers and the meat birds, there are also fancy breeds that are just selected just for showing purposes. Not that they won't lay an egg, but they're going to lay eggs very randomly and in no consistent pattern. But they will still lay eggs other than your production, your broilers, your showbirds, they're also chickens that lay colored eggs. The actual name for those are Americanas. I know we often call those as Easter Eggers now, but they also lay colored eggs in the colors of blue, green, purple, pink, and those are absolutely good eggs to eat. A lot of people just like Having the birds because they lay the colors, but those are also good egg laying birds. They will lay quite a few days in a year and they're very hardy birds. So, when selecting a breed, if you're a beginner, those are things that are really important to look at before you go out and just buy a bird. It's really a good idea to plan for what you want to use that bird for look at their egg production and look at what birds are hardy or can tolerate certain areas of the country and really that's what we did as well when we selected birds for the business when we selected birds for just 4H and FFA projects we selected show birds for showing we selected egg layers for my son to show in some of the egg classes in 4-H. And if we wanted just a bird just for refrigerator purposes, we selected broilers.
0: It's so interesting to think about. That you might have uh, multicolored eggs. When we go into the grocery store, we usually only see white eggs and and maybe a small section of brown eggs, but is there any quality difference between a white egg, a brown egg, a colored egg? Tell us about that.
1: Quality-wise, no. Quality comes with the number of days in which you collect an egg. It's based on the air sac. There's a small part of the egg itself, and we measure when we work with our inspector with the Iowa Department of Agriculture. We want to make sure that the egg sac is in the proper specifications for quality. As an egg sits somewhere and does not get harvested, the larger the air sac in an egg is where your quality becomes an issue. Quality also occurs for the number of days that a carton sits on a shelf. So if you put a date on your egg carton, that date is a very important date. And when you work with an inspector with the Iowa Department of Ag, especially small producers, They are held to very strict rules on how long the carton of eggs can sit on a shelf. And it's up to the producer to make sure that they are gathering eggs in a very timely manner. So when we harvested eggs, we harvested three times a day. At each harvest, every single egg came in, got inspected weighed, candled, and immediately put into cartons with labels into a refrigeration system so that when we got inspected, we wanted to make sure that the quality of our eggs met a grade A inspection. There are different grades that a producer can put on his label. And those grades are determined by the Iowa Department of Agriculture or whatever state you're in based on the size of the air sac, the quality of the yolk, and the quality of the white that you can see within the egg when candling it. When we grade eggs, that grade has to be put on a label, and grade AA is The best grade that you can get. We started out with a grade A the first year, and Mm -hmm. I always wanted to get better. So I asked the inspector, Well, what could I do to improve the eggs? And she said, Instead of harvesting them once a day or twice a day, if you harvested them three times a day, your air sac will get smaller. And that means that it's more yellow and it's more white for the consumer. So less air.
0: I see. So... The air sac is there for the developing chick, but obviously none of these eggs are going to turn into chicks as they weren't fertilized. It's so interesting to hear you talk about uh, harvesting three times a day. When we talk about egg production, we talk about the chickens producing one egg a day, roughly. It's it's not exactly a 24-hour cycle, but then you harvest three times a day because the entire flock are laying at different times, correct? That is
1: correct. And, you know, when we talk about production, anything, a lot of times consumers think of a chicken as something production and they are not a mechanical piece of equipment and they will lay at different times of the day. They may change their habits. If they stop laying in the morning, they may lay in the evening. And so, to try to be as consistent as possible with all of your birds when you're talking about a large scale business, some people will put or add artificial lighting because the more the chicken has lighting, The more apt they are going to lay in the hours that you add that lighting. It's very important to regulate the temperatures where the hens are housed. That also determines a time when you may get your eggs. Obviously, there's also a natural biological clock in a chicken, and you can alter that biological clock by changing the hours of light for them as well as temperature.
0: Denise, this has been a lot of fun and I have learned so much. Thank you for doing this. Welcome to Outstanding in Their Fields. I'm your host, Will Fett, and with me today is Megan Thorson, a teacher who is doing great work integrating agriculture into her family and consumer science classes. Hi, Megan. How are you today?
2: Hi, I'm just fine. Thank you.
0: Well, get us started. Let us know a little bit about what your educational background is and your professional training to become a teacher.
2: All right. So I actually, how many years ago... Went to University of Wisconsin River Falls and received my background in agriculture education. So that's actually my teaching degree is actually in agriculture education. And when I graduated college, I worked for the University of Minnesota Extension for 15 years. And so I worked with their 4-H youth development program. And then just a few years ago, I had the opportunity to um, teach in the town that's right next door. And so I said, Why not? And so now I'm actually still kind of working on my endorsement towards family consumer science, but it fits in huge with agriculture, of course, because agriculture is growing the food that we eat and family consumer science classes. So it fits in perfectly. And I feel like with my agriculture background that I can, you know, teach more life skills and more of the agriculture background with my students that way.
0: That's great. So give us a, a little bit more of an understanding. What is your current role, your responsibilities, and the students that you work with?
2: This will be going on about my third year. I'm teaching at Northwood Kensett Junior and Senior High School in Northwood, Iowa. And so I teach a couple foods classes. We have a cafe here, and I do an exploratory class with our middle school. So every seventh and eighth grader has to come through the family consumer science class. And then I have, like I said, the variety of the foods classes that I also teach. So a lot of the day is spent in the kitchen. Um, The exploratory classes that I have, we focus a lot on more of the nutrition and the five food groups and the nutrients that are in those foods. And then we go into making um, different foods, some healthier, kind of doing healthier swaps or looking at those food labels and what do all of those words mean and why that's important to look at those when we're um, making healthy choices.
0: That's great. And not all of us get to spend all day every day in a classroom. What does a typical day look like for you?
2: Well, family consumer science is kind of crazy, especially when you have as many foods classes, you know, that I teach. And I guess that's my choice. Um, Family consumer science has a whole realm of different things you can teach from foods to interior design to clothing, child development. But here at Northwood, we really focus a lot on foods because we know it's really important for when students graduate that they know the basic skills for being in the kitchen and knowing kind of the right foods to eat. And so a typical day for me is just starting in the morning with getting the kitchen ready for some of my foods classes. I have foods classes right away, first hour. And so sometimes it's getting out supplies for them and all of our ingredients that we need for that recipe for the day sometimes it's preheating ovens for the students or this week we've been making bread. So taking out their yeast dough and just trying to get that warmed up, it just kind of rolls right into the next class. So I have seven classes I teach and they're 45 minutes apiece, And we only have three minutes between each class. So it just kind of rolls right into the next class. When we are in the kitchen, you know, you can't do a lot in 45 minutes you know, by the time you look at the recipe, prep the food, start baking it, cleaning up, trying to eat it. So sometimes we even have to spread it between two or three days. And a lot of times, you know, the students might be a little late for the next hour and we just kind of roll right into the next class that I have. So we've been really fortunate that we have been in school this whole time. The cleaning is always really good in the kitchen, but we have really amped it up this year and really make sure that between each classes that everything is sanitized students are good about that. But like I said, we really have to make sure this year and even cleaning the tables in between classes and utensils and everything. So that's been a lot more intense this year. And with the amount of students I have, it's, you know, doing laundry during the day and putting a load of laundry in and putting in the dryer and getting, you know, the cleaning towels back into the kitchens and uh, different things like that. So yeah, it's kind of crazy. This seems like, you know, a lot of them, I I just feel like it's family and it's just kind of a family style um, cooking and cleaning and like you do at home a lot of the time. So, but it's with students at school. So.
0: And those are great life lessons for students, uh, and particularly in, in current times, understanding food safety and food preparation and how cross-contamination can be such a major risk factor in the kitchen. What are some of those basic skills about food safety that you're trying to get across to your seventh and eighth graders?
2: Yeah. So right away, that's kind of our first lesson, of course, that we work with before they are even allowed to be in the kitchen. What is safe in the kitchen? And a lot of that has to do with cross-contamination. So if you touch anything else, I mean, even if it's your face or your hair, your face mask, rewashing your hands right away. We do a little lesson too with the seventh and eighth graders. You know, we use the, the germ glow where we put on the lotion and show them how well they wash their hands. So, of course, we put a lotion on and then they have to wash their hands a certain way. And then it lights up where they missed washing their hands. So they really see like, oh, I missed my wrist or I missed in between my fingers. And then we just expand on that.
0: A UV light can be so incriminating with that germ glow uh, lotion if they're not doing it right.
2: Exactly. And so just kind of showing that even the difference between warm water and using soap or scrubbing and all those pieces kind of come in just with that germ glow. So they can really see, you know, how that's important to even wash your hands correctly. And then, of course, we talk about, you know, if you're touching raw eggs or something raw and then before you're touching ready to eat food. You know, making sure you're washing hands; otherwise, you're cross-contaminating that food also. So, cross-contamination can come from lots of many forms. Everybody always thinks it's raw food or raw meats to something that's ready to eat, but it, the cross-contamination can come from just touching your clothes or. Well, especially now that you know we we have COVID on our mind, but you know, touching our clothes and touching our phone, some of those skills right away are the are the first ones. You know, even the safety as far as wearing closed-toed shoes, watching if you spill something, clean it up right away, and, and different things like that. Especially when we're serving other people or making food for other people, we really need to watch the cross contamination and even being safe in the kitchen and using the utensils like we should be.
0: And that's such a great thing to think about. You know, all of school is meant to prepare our students for the real world, but it's not quite as straight of a connection between a math concept and applying that in the real world. But what you are doing in your class is uh, very applicable because they can go home and implement it immediately.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And I even talk about that. They'll say something about math. I'm like, okay, but we are using math in here. You know, I need three quarters of a cup. Do we have three quarters of a cup? No. So what do we, what do we use in the kitchen that we can get that three quarters of a cup or we're doubling a recipe or we're having a recipe. So those skills like that, they understand it better when they can utilize it in a way that they get to make something that tastes good. So it's that instant gratification too, I think is that's what's so helpful. And I kind of I guess, hold that against them for it kind of for everything like, oh, if you don't do the cleaning all no, today, you don't get to make this or something like that. So it's also kind of that motivation to do some things, too, in the classroom that they might not get in the other classrooms, too.
0: That's great. So you you mentioned food safety and then food safety in the preparation easily rolls into food safety in the uh, cooking. Give us an example of one of your lessons that involves cooking or ingredients that you might really focus on cooking temperatures, cooking times to ensure that safety aspect.
2: Right. So I always do a, a unit on protein. We do a lot of temping in that one about how to appropriately cook your meat. You know, if you're doing a dry cooking method or a moist cooking method, but then how do we know that that meat's done? You know, a lot of times they're like, well, you look at it and you set the temperature. Well, yeah, but what's another step to make sure that that chicken is done? So making sure, you know, if we do a chicken alfredo is one of the first ones that we do, so we can temp that chicken before we're adding it into the alfredo sauce and the noodles um, and making sure that chicken's done or for making hamburgers. Yes, you can tell by looking a little bit at them because of the pinkness, but we should still temp it to make sure that it's done, and so it's killing anything that could be in that meat that we have.
0: I'm assuming you're actually using meat thermometers to check the temperatures.
2: Exactly. Yep. And we have a couple different meat thermometers in here—the instant read, plus you know the ones that are a little bit slower. And I've gotten a lot of you know them donated even from. I use a lot of lessons from like the Iowa Beef Council, the Iowa Pork Board. They have awesome lesson plans and recipes to use. And then a lot of times they even send teachers items to utilize in their classroom so recipe cards and then like I got a bunch of thermometers from the pork board too to use so that's really nice so they don't have to sit there and pass thermometers back and forth every kitchen has at least a couple thermometers and then we talk about even how to clean that thermometer in between using it and calibrating the thermometers and things like that so if we have them at home how do we do that
0: that's great Another thing you mentioned is getting the students to be able to read food labels and how that kind of leads into nutrition. Maybe an example that I'm thinking of is the difference between different types of eggs. You might have free range. You might have cage free. You might have organic eggs. That's a lot of difference. But when you think about the nutrition of an egg, they're very, very similar. Maybe using that or maybe just thinking about other food labels. How do you get your students to understand how to read a label and understand nutrition?
2: We talk a lot about what the media tries to sell you onto. And so we even talked about this, like, for instance, in our turkey lesson that we just did for Thanksgiving is that, you know, there's labels out there that say, oh, they're hormone and steroid free. And I tell them that all poultry is hormone and steroid free. So don't be paying any more because your label says that. And so we talk about how, you know, that's just an example of, okay, that's the first thing that you look at when you buy something, one of those labels. And so that's even kind of a marketing gimmick for eggs. For instance, you know, some of them will have you pay more because they're free range or they're brown versus white or because they use all natural feed or something like that. And so that's something that we do talk about in class is that what are those marketing gimmicks? And if you actually look at the nutrients of the egg, an egg is an egg is an egg. So and I actually have eggs at home. A lot of times I have extra. So I bring in uh, my own eggs. And they're brown, of course, and then we have white ones that we'll buy at the store. And so we just compare them, too. And do they look differently when you crack them open? They might look a little differently just because the yolk color sometimes and things like that. And we'll talk about that when we crack it open. And that's something, too, that we go over one of our first lessons when we do our egg lesson is looking at the inside of the egg, too, and kind of talking about those things. Because a lot of times, students don't understand that. They just kind of go off the label, and it's kind of like, well, that's marketing gimmick, so you're paying more for that. <laughs>
0: And do your students ever have any of those aha moments when you present some of this material to them?
2: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like I said, like the turkey one was the latest one that just made sense that, okay, we're, you know, we're deep frying this turkey that we did in class. And so let's look at this label. Like, why are we paying any more for this versus that? And we even talk about the commercially produced turkeys, like in that instance, versus, you know, the wild turkeys. And so we even talk about the differences, like even in chickens and eggs. What does that mean if it means free range? or cage-free. You know, there's a couple of videos out there too that actually show you free range might not even mean they have free range of the yard. It might be that they can just see the sunlight, for instance. So we even watch lots of short little videos on that or I share experiences from my own background, living on a farm and things like that too, so.
0: Now you bring some of that agriculture education background and experience to your classroom. Why do you think it's important to kind of take that extra initiative and really interweave and integrate agriculture production into the food end of it?
2: Right. Well, without agriculture, of course, um, we wouldn't have food. And so that's what I tell them. Everything that we start with, you know, you don't just get your cookies. What does the cookie start with? You know, flour. What does flour come from? What is that raw agriculture product? And so I think it's important because agriculture is my background, of course. And so I want to try to, yeah, interweave that into family consumer science because it is related. It's You know, agriculture is food, fiber and fuel. Food is one of them. And we use food every day in our classroom. What is the raw agriculture product? And so that's actually one of the lessons we start um, in eighth grade with my exploratory. By the time they take foods and things and they have that initial background and then we just expand on it as, you know, they take more foods classes. But so we talk about that, you know, for the processing and how we actually get it from that farm and then how do we get it as a product.
0: I'm guessing that the students might actually gain a little bit more appreciation for where their food comes from. Can you maybe describe uh, some of the student experiences that you have witnessed or seen over the years?
2: Well, like I said, this is only going on about my third year, but I mean, even just some of the pieces that I pull in. So an example, even two that I've um, pulled in the last couple of years is looking at processing of animals. And so it's hard to go into just a processing plant, of course, or even a meat locker, for instance. So we actually, I have market rabbits too at home. And so that's one of our lessons in the fall when we talk about protein is how do they process some of that? So we bring a rabbit in and we have, you know, somebody else I guess, kel it first for us. And then we skin it and we cool it and everything like they would. And then the next day, then we cook it up. So they can kind of see that whole process from raw product to eating it. And that's just one example of a protein. And so then we're able to kind of do that with multiple products that we use, you know, the food products, like where does this come from? One of our our goals is too, is that um, last year, I had a tower garden in my classroom, which is kind of like an indoor hydroponic garden. So they were really able to see, you know, I had some of the students help me plant the seeds and we planted them into the garden and we grew our own lettuce and basil and um, some of the herbs and pieces like that. So they could really see like you really don't even need, you know, a huge plot outside to have fresh food. That kind of talks about the agriculture, too, is how else you can get food without having a huge amount of space or a huge amount of land, too.
0: That's such good experience for the students. If you think about how many things in our modern kitchen have already gone through considerable processing of flour being one example, ground from wheat. If you think about taking the students all the way back to that original agricultural product, it has to open their eyes.
2: Yes. Yeah. And like I said, we do that with, you know, multiple ag products. So- we just go through a whole list and think about, you know, the ice cream, where does that come from and how much is it processed or even your oatmeal cream pies, you know, that are super processed, but what is the first you know, product on there will be your, your flour. And where does flour come from? So we kind of even talked about what's minimally processed foods compared to what's highly processed. And then we really get down to the, What is the initial raw product in this box of Cheerios, for instance, or something like that. But,
0: Well, it sounds like your classes are a lot of fun. What's kind of your favorite aspect of integrating agriculture into this food preparation and food nutrition aspect?
2: Oh, there's so many different lessons that I really love just because I can still use my agriculture background and I love to cook. So it just intermixes so well. And I am a very much of a hands on person, too. I can't sit still for very long. And so I, I get that with the students, like, well, we're in the kitchen, we, you know, we should be learning in the kitchen and hands on and making messes and learning from our mistakes and things like that. So I'm a huge one about we're learning from our mistakes. And if we mess up, we're going to try again tomorrow. And, and I just love that I can utilize my ag background and bring some of those experiences to my students. because. Thankfully, we live in a rural area here in Northwood. They're very much used to the farm and the crops and the things that they can see. But either way, it doesn't matter where I would be. It's just something that I think every student should know where your food is coming from. And so I'm glad that I get to share that with the students and pass it on. and Hopefully they can pass it on to their own kids or family someday, or even if going home, sharing it with their own family at home.
0: I couldn't agree more with that sentiment. Now, a lot of what you do is preparing students for the uh, day-to-day application of kind of how they live their life and how they stay healthy. But what kind of potential careers do you think you're preparing your students for in agriculture or in food?
2: Yeah. So, you know, of course, some of the students are just in my class because they want to cook more themselves or learn how to cook or they love food to eat. Kind of like me too. I love to eat. But some of them, of course, maybe they want to go into culinary. So owning their own bakery, maybe it's being a chef at a big restaurant, maybe it's being a cook here at one of restaurants here, even in Northwood. And even if it's not that, even if it's just working at the local gas station right now, but they can still utilize those skills and still share those skills at the jobs that they have right now. So the safety and sanitation pieces and even, you know, the problem solving pieces that they learn about in the kitchen or working with other people in the kitchen or the multitasking. So all of those kind of employability skills go to any job. It doesn't matter if it's in culinary or not, or if you want to be a chef or not. A lot of the skills that we're learning in the kitchen can go to any other job that a student is going to have.
0: You've given us a couple of examples of lessons that you've walked your students through. But I'm just curious, do you have a a favorite lesson that you teach throughout the year? And maybe could you kind of walk us through that?
2: It's probably the lesson that we started this week with baking. I love to bake. <laughs> so for instance, we talk about leavening agents. That's kind of where we started. So we talk about baking soda versus baking powder versus yeast, and then even eggs and how they're a leavening agent. And so we go and we start with kind of making like some quick breads with either powder or soda. And then we kind of go into making like cinnamon rolls and pretzels with the yeast. And then we're going to go back to this making some of the quick cookies and uh, cupcakes. Again, I would really like to share like some recipes and some of my favorite things, and then letting the students kind of be creative with their decorating. For instance, when we do sugar cookies or their cupcakes, and so letting them choose the kind of cupcake and then how they want to decorate it and kind of showing their skills of that. So that, yeah, we've been making a lot of baked goods the last few days between the quick breads, and now we're on to the yeast breads, and then we'll be going on to cupcakes um, the next couple of days, and then some decorating tips and tricks for that, and then also the sugar cookies, just rolling them out and cutting them, and letting the students kind of get excited about decorating and excited about Christmas and the holidays and so that's probably my favorite lesson, just doing a little snippet. I tell my students this right away, I said we could talk about this for six months, like we could you know really talk and really dig deep in baking, um but we do so many units just in the foods class itself. So we only really talk about it for a couple of weeks. I mean, we we're baking throughout the whole year, but I'm um, really getting down into, you know, why, why do we use these ingredients for instance? And then, you know, getting into making a lot of the fun things that I think is fun and seeing, like I said, seeing the students get excited about it and getting ready for the holidays. So.
0: That's great. I love that. And you mentioned using eggs as leavening agent. I have never learned more about perseverance and hard work than trying to hand whisk egg whites to stiff peaks. Almost no. impossible. Yeah,
2: don't use your hand whisk. We have KitchenAids here in the kitchen and I don't even have a KitchenAid at home. But yeah, when we did like even whipping cream for something, I was like, yeah, don't sit there and like hand whip that. Put it in your KitchenAid, put the whisk on and just like let it work, like let it do its job because you know we talk about a lot of times like how, you know, letting the kitchen tools do what they're meant to do. <laughs> so yeah, same. Yeah. Same eggs, yeah.
0: And, and how great that we have technology and machinery to help us out in the kitchen yeah. as well as on the farm. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You've kind of hit on a couple of different things, but what's the best part about your job?
2: I think, well, one of the best parts is I just like working with youth and sharing my knowledge and not only sharing knowledge, but I get also knowledge from them. So if they know something else, you know, that they want to share, you know, with me, cause like I said, I am not, a baking expert. I did not go to culinary school. <laughs> like for instance, last year, you know, a student was like, well, I know how to make so Can I, you know, invite these people and make left? I'm like, yes, by all means, let's do that. And because I want to learn too. So it's, it's just kind of learning from each other. And like I said, I really like working with the students and then watching them grow eventually. Like I said, I've only, you know, been here a couple of years, but in my previous experience working with the 4-H students there again, you know, watching them from all the way from five years old to 18 and watching them grow that whole time. And then just getting excited about, you know, oh, I'm going to take your class next year because I want to learn this or what other classes can I take? And so that's really exciting, too, that, you know, they want to come back into the classroom and and really, you know, learn more and still be in the classroom and do some of those things.
0: So a lot of positives for sure. But with the positives, there's always some negatives. What's the worst part about your job?
2: Well, in this position, it's just really busy. There's always like things to get and, you know, receipts to do and some of the paperwork stuff and teaching in general. (laughs) Sometimes I don't like the paperwork part of it. Putting in the standards, you know, has to be this and then you have to have the grades how many times a week. And, you know, so some of those pieces I'm not as good about because I would much rather, like I said, be the hands on, like up out of my desk and be in the kitchen or doing something with the students. So. Um, sometimes it's just kind of the paperwork that I don't enjoy as much.
0: Well, thanks, Megan. This has uh, really been great. I appreciate you taking some time with us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Be sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, our website and our Facebook page. For more information on the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation, visit iowaagliteracy.org. Remember, too, to subscribe to Outstanding in Their Field on your favorite podcast streaming service and learn more in the show notes. For now, thanks for listening and stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field.